The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger. Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are going back to Kemper's favorite short story collection, The Listerdale Mystery. Rejoice! (laughs) So excited. You know, we have a fun title this time, right? The Raja's Emerald. Is it fun? I mean, <laughs> it, it makes, makes me, me worried. 100% worried. But <laughs> I was trying to say that we should start this on an upbeat note and hope that this might just be a fun, exciting adventure. When I saw the title, my face became a side eye emoji. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it immediately brings up a lot of questions. But to be fair to the story, I actually think most of most of those worries turned out to not be borne out. This story skirts uh, around the edges of 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 anything all that controversial, uh, truly offensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the publication history of Siraj's Emerald? Absolutely. So this was first published in July of 1926, early story here, in Red Magazine. I don't think we've ever come across that one before. It sounds suspiciously commie to me. Um, Christie would never publish in a communist or even socialist magazine, obviously. Well, Not although like we do, we do get we do get some commentary on socialism in this story. We certainly do, actually. Maybe maybe it really is. <laughs> That's why it's the Red Magazine. Um, but it was then collected as part of, of course, the Lusterdale Mystery Collection in the UK in June 1934, and much later in the US in the Golden Ball and other stories in 1971. Catherine, who is our victim in this story? Well, our victim is the Raja of Marputna, who has had his giant emerald stolen. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so far so good. Any other victims? You could oh, I, you know, I suppose that we might say that our protagonist is a victim of sorts, a victim of the cruel twists and turns of female affection. Mm, intriguing. Well, more on that in a moment. I will tell us about our suspect, because there really is only one. And that would be D.I. Merrilies of Scotland Yard, who is investigating the emerald theft. And perhaps there is more than meets the eye to this detective inspector. The world as it appears to be. Take it away, Catherine. We open with James Bond. 
oh, with with whom? I'm sorry, did you not hear me, Kemper? We open with James Bond. <laughs> Bond? James Bond? Bond. James Bond. Yes. That's really his name. (laughs) What? I would like to point out this was 27 years over a quarter century before Ian Fleming's first novel. So this is an inadvertent (laughs) uh, connection here that any reader nowadays would make upon reading the story. Kind of checking the page like, wait, what? What's happening? I don't know. Do we know that Ian Fleming didn't really love the Raja's Emerald? It's possible, you know. Yeah, inadvertent, perhaps not on Ian Fleming's part. Perhaps the entire James Bond series is an homage to the Raja's Emerald. I mean, I doubt that, but, you know, let's let's go with that. It makes it more exciting. It's sort of extra funny, though, unintentionally funny that his name is James Bond, given what he is struggling with as our story opens. Right, because James Bond is on vacance with his paramour, Grace, at a high-end resort town, Kimpton-on-Sea, and they've been sort of dating for close to three years, and... She's recently seen her social standings go up because uh, she has a job in a very fashionable place now and she's making a really good income and she's mixing with the right people. It was basically her suggestion to go to this resort. And part of the reason she suggested it turns out to be that her friends are also going to be there, including a posh, flirty young man, Claude, who obviously has a thing for Grace. And worse... Uh, You you have to include Claude's last name. Claude Sopworth. I know, and the Sopworth sisters. They're they're not the the Skylar sisters, I'm afraid. They're the Sopworth sisters. I think they might be the flip side of the Skylar sisters, (laughs) i.e. not good. (laughs) They're all Peggy. It's it's just a whole bunch of Peggies. (laughs) Anyway, all of the Sopworths are staying at the Esplanade, which is the Grand Hotel in Kimpton-on-Sea. And Grace gets herself an invite to stay at the hotel. So James Bond is staying by himself in some real mediocre lodging. (laughs) I actually quite enjoyed the first half to two-thirds of this story because, to me, it was a fascinating anthropological look at what it was like to holiday at the beach in the 20s. Um, And also the class differences that are being shown up here are both interesting and legitimately funny. This is the vacation from hell. I mean, poor James Bond is on the vacation from hell and Christy has a lot of fun with it. So No, and that that is very charming because it's like, could you imagine a worse scenario? It sounds horrible. It sounds absolutely horrible. So they invite him to the beach, but when James gets there, he's not allowed into the fancy hotel-only beach section. I think what's going on here is that they need to change into their bathing costume, right? So there's like a tent that you go into and you change out of your proper clothes and you go into your bathing costume and then immediately go out onto the beach because it would be unseemly to be seen in your bathing suit anywhere other than 
right by the water and in the water, unlike today when we traipse about in our bathing wear practically to church. So I found that I found that sort of charming. So he has to go to this public area where there are just all of these long lines leading to the public tents where people are taking forever to change. And he's just really impatient and everyone else is impatient. There are these two women that get into a fight right in front of him about whose turn it is. And there's this old grizzled mariner type, which is also really funny. He's like kind of straight out of Jaws. Um, I know. He really, right? he was reminiscent of that for sure. And he's always like staring out at the sea and he's, you yeah, know. He's, he, Ro- he he's Robert Shaw. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He hardly says anything. He's very laconic in that way. And he breaks up the fight between the two ladies. And James is asking if there are any other tents where he can go. And he's just he's not very helpful and um, not really interested in getting involved in these landlubbers sort of spats on the beach. James, being a resourceful young man, after all, his name is James Bond, he sneaks off toward these super posh huts that only the most elite of hotel guests have. So this is even more elite than what Grace and the Sopworth sisters and Claude Sopworth are changing in a little further down the beach. And he picks one that is unlocked. At first, he kind of like there's the female half and the male half. And you can tell he's a little horrified that he's even seeing ladies clothing and he rushes into the the male half uh, where he notes a pair of similarly worn gray flannel trousers. And this had been uh, discussed earlier in the story, um, the fact that Grace has a problem with James's trousers because they're just not smart. And James makes the point that, well, the poshest people, in fact, wear dingy trousers. And she points out, well, yes, but they're posh, so they can pull it off and you can't. And that's kind of the first time that we realize Grace is kind of the worst. But um, it seems that she's been corrupted by her fashionable job. Yes, yes, absolutely. She's not keeping good company and she's she's just sort of swallowed all of their nonsense hook, line, and sinker, to use a nautical... An ocean uh, metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little a little nautical metaphor there. Yeah, so James strips on down in, the, uh, in this tent. He comes out the other side and goes out into the ocean. Unfortunately for James Bond, it is also very cold. So while he, you know, teaches Grace a little bit to swim more than Claude can. He, right. he basically yeah, that's his correct- big victory. I know, it's his big victory. Claude is teaching her how to do the wrong strokes, and so, you know, James can step in. But unfortunately, the water is very cold, and so they can't stay in it very long, and they have to get out of the water, and the group wants to go to lunch at the hotel. But again, as Grace has already told him, his clothes are shabby, he bows out. Right. I believe Christy references, well, it was England after all. So, you know, though it's not like the water was actually warm. Like, that's what's so funny. Even among Grace's set, this is kind of a shabby vacation. <laughs> like, it's not that great. 
It's pretty clear that this is not like Mr. Satterthwaite would never be caught dead at this resort. I'm sorry. Right. Absolutely not. This is not the Riviera. Yeah, this is not the Riviera. I mean, yes, there there is a Raja here with assorted other dignified guests, and we will get to it in a moment. But even so, this doesn't seem to really be quite up to the standards of a Mr. Satterthwaite. In any case, back in that beach hut, the one that he trespassed in, he has to go back, of course, because his pants are still there. He is about to put on those pants, but then people are suddenly trying to get into the hut. So he thinks quickly on his feet and essentially grabs onto the doorknob so that as they're trying to get in they can't open it and they think that it's locked <laughs> although i have and that to they be have honest to... if anybody yeah. if anybody in real life were actually holding the door versus it just being locked i think you would notice you would notice i like imagining that these the, it's these two women that come up i like imagining the fact that they totally know that someone's in there and they're so creeped out by it <laughs> that they're like oh it must be locked yeah let's go get a key and get out of here and then they leave <laughs> run away from the person on the other side of the door who's like holding it with the death grip i know so they do leave and then he just very quickly pulls his pants on and runs out in a big rush, understandably, because he needs to get out of there. So he takes basically a long, bitter walk by himself. He's still stewing over Grace, ignoring him for fancier folk. He wanders into town where, again, like unfortunately for him, there's yet another queue, this time at the restaurant. And it's exactly the public beach problem. He tries to order then when he finally gets seated. But at that point, everything is quote unquote off. Nothing's on the menu, right? Like everything's already been eaten. Everything's been eaten. So the only choice left is arico mutton. Which sounds so disgusting. (laughs) Tasty. Have you ever had had mutton? I actually have never had mutton. And that is very much a deliberate path that I've chosen. My life that I have never had mutton because correct me if I'm wrong, but mutton is sheep, right? Yeah, I've had mutton. I've had lamb because lamb is the more tender version of mutton, right? So why have mutton if you could have lamb? Because you don't want to eat a baby sheep, I suppose. Oh, Catherine, if you're (laughs) eating mutton, you might as well. It's not like you're eating veal here. They don't keep the lambs in little boxes. No, it's true. Mutton, actually, I've had mutton in a Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles. There's some overlap with Korean food. And so um, there's a restaurant that does a sort of like hybrid Chinese-Korean barbecue. And I've had mutton there. I mean, basically the trick to any tough meat is that you have to marinate it for a really long time. That sounds like it was probably good because it's being marinated in all sorts of delicious spices and flavors so that you could. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's like it was a funny thing that it sounds just repulsive when put like this. There's a way to do it, which I found to be perfectly decent. But this does not sound like that way because our dear James Bond really doesn't touch it either. This to me was the high point of the story because I thought it was so funny. The interaction between him and the waitress. Is there anything on this Beastly menu that isn't off, demanded James. The waitress looked pained and placed a pale gray forefinger against Erico Mutton. 
And then James just resigns himself to that and he orders a button. But the fact that her forefinger is pale gray is really funny. Like, is she a zombie corpse? Maybe. I, know, I wondered that too. I was like, is her <laughs> finger the color of the mutton? This restaurant is repulsive. And Christy has a lot of fun painting that tableau for us. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. But while James Bond is sitting in this terrible restaurant, he reaches into his pants pocket and he finds a stone, which he can't imagine why it would be in his pants pocket because he is not in the habit of picking them up on the beach. And when he pulls it out, <laughs> Kelly's surprise, it's a huge emerald. One that is rumored to be owned by the Raja. He at first thinks, well, no, this, this can't be. But then mostly he can't figure out why it's in his pants. And I don't know if we mentioned this, but it has been noted earlier on in the story that the Raja is staying at this resort area, right? Yeah, he's a guest of the Lord Edward Campion. Yes, that famous sportsman, Lord Edward Campion. And there was staying there at the moment a house full of distinguished guests, including the Raja of Mariputna, whose wealth was fabulous. James is reading all about them in, of course, the newspaper, as characters so often tend to do in these Christie short stories, when we first open on him. So he is quite horrified that he perhaps has inadvertently stolen this emerald from the Raja, and he remembers that his worn gray flannels were the same as the worn gray flannels in that beach hut that he was trespassing in, which means that the jewel must in fact belong to the Raja. But why is it in a pair of pants? That It's just a really odd place for an emerald to be put after he sadly pays his bill. I don't even think he touched his mutton in the end. No. The no, waitress is she, very she asked, um, Yeah, she asked him if he too. needed something else to eat. Yeah, yeah. She's basically like, are you done? Get out. So he leaves that. That was just a complete loss from beginning to end, that restaurant experience. He walks by a newsstand where the headlines all declare the theft of the giant emerald from a party the night before, hosted by Lord Edward Campion. He also figures out from that grizzled marriage Type black eye, like a doll's eye. That the beach hut he had gone into was, in fact, Lord Edward Campion's. So, this is right. quite a pickle. Our dear Mr. Bond can't quite decide what to do. He would just go straight to the police, but then on the other hand, it seems ludicrous for him to go to the police because he would have to tell them that he broke into a beach hut. He used it, and then he accidentally put on someone else's pants. So he decides that the best response is not going to be to mail the jewels back. He also considers that. You know, his rationale for that is basically he was really predicting the rise of CSI and crime television because essentially he's just like, well, I'll mail it and then I'll look at the packaging and they'll look at how it was mailed and they'll figure it out and they'll trace it back to me anyway. So he runs back to the beach hut to swap out the pants. That's the only solution that he sees. At the beach hut, which is called, by the way, Mon Désir. Mm. He is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> intruded upon by a Scotland Yard inspector named Inspector Merrilies, who insists on taking him under arrest. James is horrified, but also suspicious, and he tries to buy time. So he insists that the emerald is actually in his lodging. The you know he had still had it concealed on his person, so the inspector didn't actually see it. And Merrilies goes with him to retrieve it, saying that if he cooperates, Lord Edward and the Raja, they want to keep this whole thing hush hush anyway. Apparently, there was some lady who was implicated, you know, who's within this upper crusty circle, and they just don't want this thing to be public. So perhaps he'll get away in the end with uh, not being charged. 
it seems like he's going along with this until they're in town and they're passing the police station. And all of a sudden, James basically starts screaming, thief, thief. And, of course, the police come out and James explains to the police that Marilee's pickpocketed him. And, you know, when they're searched, of course, Marilee's, his pockets have the uh, have the emerald. Yeah, so... When we come to the end of the world, as it appears to be, I mean, has James Bond been playing us this entire time? Is he, in fact, a thief? Because we know that something weird was happening here between the time that Merrilee's happened upon him in the beach hut to when they got to the police station. And let's talk about the world as it actually is. Both men play a game of jacques But the local constabulary says that instead of looking at this as a game of he said, he said, they'll just wait for an expert to come to the station. And that expert is Lord Edward, who very easily solves this problem because he looks at the two of them, immediately realizes that the so-called Inspector Merrilies is really Jones, his valet, who had just been sent down from London the month before. And who they had been suspecting from the word go. So the valet had stolen the emerald during the party. He hides it in a pair of old pants in the beach hut, thinking no one will look there. And then when the police come to investigate the house, there will be nothing in the house. And then when suspicion is sort of off of that, he can go down to the beach hut and retrieve the emerald and, you know, I guess presumably go back to London to fence it, right? Right, yeah, and and the old pair of pants is, of course, an old pair of pants of Lord Edwards, and it's noted at the beginning of the story that he wears old trouser pants, which is why James makes that comment to Grace that there are right. some people who are lords and who wear pants as shabby as mine, and she says, yeah, well, you're not a lord. So that's how his valet is able to pull that off. He obviously had access, easy access to his pants, mm-hmm. <laughs> to his right. pants. And that's also why this valet knew when he saw James in the hut, even though he didn't see, because it, it is very weird. It's confusing when this D.I. Merrilies just happens upon James. He immediately says, aha, you did it. But why are you all making that assumption that quickly? He's just there. You didn't actually see the emerald. It ultimately makes sense that he's making that connection because he knows that the emerald is missing. And it's pants. in the pants. And yeah. Yeah, that it's in the pants and that James probably took it. That's why Merrilee's slash Jones the valet makes that connection so quickly from the get-go. As they're leaving the police station, you know, Lord Edward is just so happy with James Bond. He thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread because he figured out who the jewel thief was. At this point, James still hasn't really told him the full story because I suppose James has just allowed them all to believe that he somehow put two and two together, even though he wouldn't have really recognized Jones the valet. So that doesn't even completely make sense. But he hasn't told anyone mm-hmm. about having trespassed in the beach hut. But James makes a split second decision and he decides to come completely clean. And he tells Lord Edward everything. And Lord Edward thinks it's even better and more hilarious. And they immediately become best friends. Right. And, or at least Lord Edward invites him to lunch. I mean, let's not go crazy. But um, that <laughs> but is if he hasn't like, eaten. Yeah. <laughs> well, which obviously he hasn't because, you know, the Arico mutton. He's like, well, there's a plate of congealed Arico mutton with my name on it. <laughs> Back at 
at like the IHOP of the 20s. It's probably like a Lions or something. But he accepts the lunch invitation. And what is the final little button on this story, Catherine, to warm or perhaps chill our hearts? On the way up to um, Lord Edward's apparently very fancy accommodations, they pass Grace and the sisters Sopworth, who are going to the movies, and they invite James to come with. And he says, oh, you know, I would come with, but actually... Lord Edward, who's standing right over there, he wants to introduce me, James Bond, to the Raja. And, uh, yeah, and also, by the way, did you notice how uh, Lord Edward and I are, like, wearing the same clothes? Because we dress exactly the same. And that's basically (laughs) how the story ends. (laughs) And we never get Grace's reaction, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Right. It's just that he's just, like, so spiteful towards the fact that he didn't get to wear his comfy clothes and she was really mean about it and now he gets to be the one with the fancy invite. It's funny because I was expecting the story to end in the same way that the manhood of Edward Robinson ends, which is that he wins back the respect of his girlfriend and they go on to live somewhat happily ever after, but it's not clear that that's going to happen at the end of the story. He seems mm-hmm. pretty mad at Grace and he basically sticks it to her triumphantly. And that is how the story ends. Yeah. A weird ending. A rarity in Christie because it is an anti-romantic ending. She has a pair of, you know, would-be lovebirds and she really keeps them apart at the end. And she usually cannot help herself especially in these slight sort of yeah. adventure stories. Yeah, she can't help putting them together at the end, but she she does here. Yeah, I mean, I kind of liked it. It was kind of funny. It's not a nasty little story in the same way, and then there were none, is a nasty, not little story, but a nasty story, but it's got a little bite to it. It's got a little yeah, well, sass. There's a real, I mean, there's an entire section about how he considered himself just a regular, run-of-the-mill liberal, except uh, looking at all of the people from the hotel on their private beach had turned him to socialism in, like, that moment. Yeah, because he feels he feels thwarted. <laughs> by yeah, the, he feels he feels thwarted. He feels like a have-not. Yeah, exactly. And it's like looking over the fence for most of it. His vengeance is getting to be with the you know richest of rich people at this resort. So it's not exactly right. <laughs> you know that's still his ultimate end goal. But but you know what's funny, and I actually think it supports the theory of the class warfare <laughs> structuring of the story. He doesn't really level with Lord Edward at the end because. We neglected to mention it, but there is this beat before the interaction with Grace where Lord Edward says, I still don't quite see how you managed to see through that detective pose of his, though. And it is a good point because it's odd when Merrilies comes upon him in the beach hut that James Bond. My name is Bond. 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 James Bond. He's immediately suspicious and he says, can I see your badge? And we are told that Inspector Merrilies does flash him a badge. And it's this astonishing coincidence that the badge Merrilies slash Jones the Valet flashed was actually a small silver badge of that little known club, the Merton Park Super Cycling Club. (laughs) 
<laughs> which James Bond is also a member of. So he knew that the badge was a fake, but he doesn't tell Lord Edward that. He leaves it a mystery because he wants Lord Edward to think that he's more, Clever. perhaps more resourceful yeah, than he is. And uh, he's still out for himself. You know, the story has a tinge of how to succeed in business without really trying. There is a brotherhood of man, a benevolent brotherhood of man. Yeah, sure does. Right? The kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, slightly doofy guy who is managing to get ahead, partly due to the ridiculousness of the people both below and above him and at his level because everyone is ridiculous. So even though you see him rising up and you're invested in that happening, you do also realize that the entire world is ridiculous. So it's all just kind of meant to be enjoyed and not taken too seriously. Well, or um, I was listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about one of my favorite movies, the 1990s feature film Dave starring Kevin Klein. I think I found some ways to put back the homeless section of the Simpson-Garner works bill. Mr. President, I don't believe that's on your agenda today. No, it's a last-minute change, Bob. And there is a running theme in that kind of good-natured, not necessarily con artist, but good, but sort of. How to succeed in business is a little bit like that, too. But it's just like, how do you be sort of good-natured and sustain a lie? Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned, the Raja never really makes an appearance. So luckily we don't have any dialogue coming from him. It's not offensive. Yeah. I mean. There was one statement, you know what these native rulers are, which was a little, you know, a little cringeworthy, but um, didn't do too badly on that score. So phew. Yeah. We made it. Dodged a bullet. (laughs) We dodged a bullet. Yeah, we made it. That is the Raja's Emerald. Join us next week. We are so excited because we have a novel episode next we time. We do. Coming up. We will be covering The Moving Finger, our Ooh, next Jane Marple novel. I have to say I'm quite excited for it. I think we always enjoy going marpling. We certainly do. So that is our next episode. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. You could always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on various social media platforms on Twitter. We are at All About the Dame and Catherine is at Bobcat. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha and our Instagram handle is all about Agatha. And we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps other people find us and expand the audience of Christy Podcast listeners out there. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, 
You impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.